Welcome to the Mind Talks podcast. You are with myself, Nathan, and my co-host, Edwin. Our special guest is a retired world-class 800-meter athlete. She ran for the Shaftesbury Barnet Harriers. She achieved both individual and team honours. Her individual honours include a bronze medal at the World Athletics Finals in Stuttgart and the Indoor Championships in Paris. Team accolades include a bronze medal at the Beijing Olympics and World Championships in Osaka, which was in the 4x4 relay. This has been a conversation everyone's been waiting for. <laughs> so um, a warm, warm, warm welcome to you, Miss Marilyn Okoro. How are you, Miss? I'm very well, thank you, Nathan. Hi, Edwin. I think that's one of my hey. best intros. Thank you. That is on point <laughs> and accurate. Love it. Yeah. Me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying, we're trying. <laughs> right, Marilyn, so I'm not sure if you are familiar um with the start of Mind Talk. So we love to start off with this same question and it's really going back to your first living memory of a sport, either playing or watching. So what was your first living memory? So you guys know I'm Nigerian, right? <laughs> yes I mean sport for me really became a thing when I went to boarding school at 10 years old and that was really born out of my dad just trying to give me the best opportunity I grew up in northwest London Stonebridge Park single parent at home and he just I remember him saying you know you're not Cinderella you need to go and read your book and become a lawyer doctor which my mum was of the same you know mindset but she was really yeah. struggling to do the best she could to raise three of us. Uh, and so when I got to this lovely boarding school in Hertfordshire, it was just a chance to, I guess, be a kid. I was 10. I did go a bit early. And I loved a game called lacrosse. I was like, what is this? <laughs> and for those who don't know, it is played with a long wooden stick. I guess it's plastic now because that's showing off my age with a net at the end. <laughs> called the boundaryless game and you can just run everywhere so it was perfect for me and I thought I was going to be an international lacrosse player it was just so fun you got to check each other it's quite vicious actually um so it's like hopping mm. in the air um and mm. so that was my first love of sport uh the team element and then tennis tennis I have to mention tennis because you know I am the the, the middle sister of the Williamses <laughs> um, and you know if I could afford the tennis lessons and the equipment and the tour, uh, we'd be having a different conversation, I think, today. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm quite fancy mm. myself a tennis player. So I didn't watch a lot of sport. That was my introduction going to that school and being, my eyes being open to, to what kids really did with play. <laughs> I think mean, tennis is a sport that so many people say they love, but never got the chance to play when they were younger. And it just shows you that, that's an area that has to be looked at a lot more because the way tennis is such a upper class sport, it's not it's not diverse at all. And if it was more diverse, we would see greater influence from all cultures in this country. It's when you just give me a new idea. Listen, it needs to happen because <laughs> listen, me, Annika, we'd be a great doubles. Annika Noara, you know, just retired as well, and I love tennis. I'm really good, but. Them tennis lessons. Do you know how much they were an hour? That <laughs> wasn't yeah. going to happen. Um, yeah. And so I did get an introduction to it through school. Um, but athletics was what was accessible to me. Athletics was what I could continue at home. 
But yeah, that's so true. And there's a few sports that, are, you know, this conversation is happening with. Um, I had a conversation today about rowing. Someone was like, why don't you try rowing? I was like, row where? <laughs> um, <laughs> it just wasn't something that, you know, a lot of the kids that I went to school with, they were like, you know, they would go to watch rowing on the, in the weekends with their parents. Same mm. with, you know, cricket. That's another one. So there yeah. is a lot, there's a lot of skills we have that we naturally would be great at these sports, but the access wasn't there when we were growing up. 100%. With regards to um, boarding school, can you just talk to us a little bit about um, your experiences there? Um, I guess I'm taking it from the angle that, you know, parts of your experience probably, you know, helped you um, during your career. So um, just talk to us about elements of um, the boarding school experience for yourself. Yeah, whenever I say I went to boarding school, a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, like, what did you do wrong? You got exiled. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, if I did something wrong, the conversation was I was shipped to Nigeria. So no, I didn't do wrong. I was actually, it was just something that was my blessing. Uh, it was meant to happen. Um, I think it was such a great way for me to see that there's more to life than what I knew in Stokenbridge, what I knew in the four walls. Um, I grew up with a lot of responsibility on my shoulder, eldest child in a Nigerian home. It's, you know, it's no news to anyone. But also my mum was struggling with a lot of mental health problems. And, you know, I'd had two distance in care. So it was literally like a holiday. I was like, I love this place. I never want to go home. Exit weekends, all the girls are crying. I'm so homesick. I was like, homesick for what? Let's just stay here. <laughs> um, but the pastoral care at my school was amazing. It was only 180 pupils at the time, which is tiny. Yeah. 20 in my year. So, you know, if that wasn't just, oh, wow. you know, God's orchestrated plan for me, I don't know what else was. And so I really got a chance to really be nurtured and be a child, like I say, but also the opportunities that came my way. I was grabbing everything. Um, I think one of the biggest blessings out of that was not only the friendships that I've made and funny, like today we're talking about this. My friend from year seven left for Australia at year 11. She's come back to the UK and the first person she yeah. met is me. So that just shows testament of the bonds we had. And that's what like helped me through those years, even though I was often the only black girl around, you know, I was just accepted for who I was. And then this whole sporting side to me was there, but also it was cool to be clever. So everyone wanted A's, everyone wanted A stars, whatever was going, we wanted the best. We were also the debate team, we were also the choir, we were also all the sports teams. Um, so there's a, there's a great kind of camaraderie that comes with that. There's a great confidence that comes with that. And our teachers were great. You know, I literally, I go back and I'm still in touch with both my boarding schools, but more so Abbott's Hill, which is this one I went to from year seven to 11, just to feed back and, and nurture and mentor the girls. And I think there's something really special about having that connection. As for me, it was such a significant defining moment of my life, going to that school, discovering running. And, you know, I can't talk about Abbott's Hill without mentioning my coach, you know, who introduced me to athletics and Chelsea Barnett who essentially was my dad, you know, he saw, yes, she's got talent, but first he had to meet my ferocious mother, who was like, where are you taking mm -hmm. my daughter? Um, <laughs> and then, you know, he chose and just willingly filled that gap. So driving me to and from training, taking me to physio, you know, paying for trainers and spikes, 
all those things that would have been barriers, he filled that gap. And so I have really fond memories of my time at Abbots Hill. I really, you know, you kind of just think, oh, you're, just, you're always going to stay around there. Obviously, track and field had other ideas, but yeah, very, very happy memories. Okay. I have to say, though, the other boarding school was a great experience, but I don't have as poignant memories because I think then those formative years. So I had to leave Abbots Hill because it only went up to um, year 11. So I went to my mm-hmm. A levels to Stowe School, which is very prestigious, white elite school. You've got stellar alumni like Richard Branson, Henry Cavill, mm-hmm. and it was a boys' school when we arrived with girls in the sixth form. So there, okay. I felt a lot more like an imposter, but I was the good runner. So that was the guys I just led with at the time. Um, but yeah, it was like I couldn't keep up. Like I didn't know about socialites and. You know, whenever you say you're from London, they just say, oh, so do you hang out on the King's Road? I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was a lot I just didn't relate to, but I thought, you know, I'm here for an education. You know, I got on really well with my peers and essentially, you know, the guys would help me train. The girls weren't that into sports. So I was like, forget you then. Um, but, you know, I had my sights set on what I was there and I was very focused and mission driven. So you know, now going back and trying to help with them to diversify the school. I'm like, yeah, guys, there's so much work to be done. I mean, I think we've got mm. two black teachers now, which is like, oh, oh. my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I left there in 2000. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, so two slightly contrasting memories, but, you know, all in all, very good foundations for, and springboards to go on excel and excel in sport. So with athletics... Uh, when you started, was 800 metres the first event you did, or did you try other events? <laughs> then how I got to 800. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm, you know, muscular, supposed to be a sprinter. That's why I look like everyone asked me, well, you're a 100 metre runner. So I did everything, to be honest with you. I mm. think because of the sports I played and all the conditioning I was getting, all that start stop, it lent very nicely to the 800. But when you're young, okay. you just do everything, especially when you're doing club athletics. You're needed yeah, they stick you on anything. If you're needed for the 4 by one if you're needed for the 1500, just get the point. And I love that. Yeah. I love that I just would do yeah. it. You know, I'm not someone that loves training, but when it comes to competition, listen, I don't play. So, and that's how I got fit. You know, I didn't do a whole lot, mm. but I was constantly doing lots of different sports and getting that conditioning. Um, so, in my head, I thought I was going to be a 200 meter sprinter. <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> no, I do know what happened. My coach was a cross country coach and he was just like, He's really fast, but you know, I don't know how to coach sprinting. I think I missed a trick not oh, doing the heptathlon. Um, yeah. but again, you know, hindsight is the useful thing. Um but yeah, I did the sprints and then just moved I think I focused on the two hundreds a lot and then I ran the three hundred, but I was awful at the three hundred. I mean I would get to I say awful, I would get to English schools and things like that, but got left and then mm. the final year it goes up to the 400 and it was just the tables were turned and I was just like you know all mm. dying and I'm just getting going <laughs> um so for a long time I thought I was gonna be a 400 meter runner and then we just kept mm-hmm. going up and then George surprised me with uh, an 800 down at Watford open meeting and I was like oh my god mm. help me run this track and it was a mixed race I just loved it. I was just passing all the guys. And uh, I ran, I think my PB at that point was 
216 going into the race and I came out mm-hmm. with a 207. I was like, they would have told me it was that easy. I would have run this a long time ago. So I think George knew what he was doing, but he, he just knew I was a little bit lazy and just wanted to do just enough. So at the right time, he okay. introduced 800. And after that, then I started studying the sport. I started looking for athletes that made me want to run the 800, like Maria Matola. She was like a long time my idol. I saw so much Legend. of me and her. Like in the UK, everyone was like, Kelly Holmes. She was great. I, I can't take away that beast mentality, but I didn't relate to her. I related mm, to Maria yeah. a lot more. So then I thought, mm. that's, that's what I want to do. <laughs> One of the things that stood out for me was um, you and training, not necessarily liking training. And I've asked previous guests about where they stood in regards to being that person that, you know, really loved being, uh, loved training, loved the repetition compared to those that it was okay it was just part and parcel of the the process knowing that you didn't you know necessarily enjoy that aspect of training um how did you mentally in the early stages get yourself prepared but also just not just um preparing but getting yourself through those training sessions and not giving up and continuing to return that's a great question um and I think I've said this a lot and no one really picks up on it because I really didn't like training I think it's a means to an end and I really love to compete so I'm willing to do whatever it takes so I can compete well and I like to put on a good show but I think my training was so confusing it wasn't really tailored to me looking back so that's why I think I was having a bit of a reaction to that and it's difficult because I think we don't have many I don't feel like there's been another athlete like me um in my sort of era and a lot of the coaches were just like you ain't running the 800 you're never gonna break 210 you're never gonna break 203 you're never gonna break two minutes and I just kept doing it and they didn't understand I wasn't like any of the others so training that I was doing was what traditionally 800 meter runners do no one really dared to think outside the box and think okay what makes Marilyn tick now I'm a workhorse so you can throw pretty much anything at me, I will get through it. But I think, especially when I was young, I think I just had a lot of anxiety. I just was like, let me just get through it. I didn't necessarily want to know what the session was. I'd just jump in. George, my first coach, coach was really clocked onto that and he would just throw me in with the boys. So mentally, mm. I was doing part of the session. So say when the lads were doing 500, I'd do a 300. And they would do the thing where it was round the, round the track. So that worked for me. So I wasn't getting too much recovery. I was getting that stimulus of chasing, but also having people behind me. So he varied it. I think he was probably the main person who really tailored things to me. And then a lot of my training I did away from him. So I went to uni and he couldn't come to Bath. And so eventually you get to that point where he's starting to be professional. (laughs) I say, you know, with the parenthesis. Mm-hmm. And at my final year of uni, I got approached by an agency and that agent subsequently was my coach, Ao Falola. And then again with Ao, you know, he was very adventurous and he just made you feel like you could fly. Um, and we did mm-hmm. some really like outlandish stuff and that's kind of how I came into my own. But also I'd gone from, you know, doing very little, relying on my talent to training six days a week, that kind of professional lifestyle and just pouring more into it so there was going to be naturally this jump 
lot of it had been, you know, a long time in the pipeline. And I remember when I first ran two minutes Commonwealth Games, I was under George Cooklitz really because I was at uni and it was just that consistency. And I'd just gone out to Australia. Obviously, you're around all these stars. It's great weather for March. And so that pop was naturally going to happen. And it was a long yeah. time coming. But um, yeah, training wise, it was a means to an end. I love the camaraderie of your training <laughs> group. That's what got me through. Everyone's in it the same. I, I'm a workhorse. And it, for me, again, it was just like I need to prepare for the race. I need to be an autopilot. So that's pretty much it. <laughs> when you first started running um, at international level, did was that straightforward for you? Because there's a lot of people that they find they find the the moment overwhelming, and there's some who who grasp it. How was it for yourself? I have to say, the beginning of my career was it's all a blur. It was such a whirlwind. You know, one second you're a great university athlete, it's great for your county, and then all of a sudden you're in the start line, the first heat, the Olympics, Maria Matola, and running her down. So, or leading her really into the, <laughs> into the home straight. So it was such a whirlwind. I think I live for the big moments. I live for the big stage. I have often been in you know, fight or flight moments. So just as a person, I could deal with that. I've spent, you know, a lot of my formative years putting on this guise and getting on with things and not fully understanding, but just doing it anyway. So I was pretty well sort of prepped for that kind of lifestyle. It's very intimidating. It's very daunting. But again, it was like showtime. So let's do it. I didn't really, really factor for me. I'm not someone that's nervous in crowds. I love the crowd. <laughs> Essentially, my reason for not going to Tokyo is because that's not the kind of crowd I want to, you know, there's not going to be a crowd. Um, and I got a lot of lift from that. So it doesn't faze me. You know, I got very nervous, um, but it was the pressure I put on myself to deliver. Um, and often I think I was fueled by a lot of no's and you can't do this. I'm like, okay, I'm going to show you what I can do. Um, but no, the crowd is, is, is one of the best bit and the whole traveling and doing things on my own. I was used to it. I think one of my memories in, in football was when Wayne Rooney came onto the scene and he scored at 16 years old against Arsenal. But one of the fascinating things that I really approved, I really understood why his manager did it was up until the age of 18, they protected him. They didn't um, allow him to have any interviews. Um, they just literally just kept him away from the media. And it's something that you said earlier about, you know, it was a bit of a whirlwind. In hindsight and going back to athletics, what do you think the, the Federation can do better in, I guess, making the transition smoother from when they move to, from, you know, university level all the way to the Olympics because surely that's going to be very daunting um, and in some respects anxiety will be heightened so looking from your perspective what could the federation do they can work with me <laughs> and <laughs> you know <laughs> let me champion those those guys that are transitioning I think that's completely what fuels my work I went to do my life coaching course and I was looking around and the master trainer said to me, you know, what kind of coach do you want to be? I said, I want to be use these tools, this self-mastery, this kind of mindset work, emotional release. This is what I want to take into sport and bring that holistic side in a real 360 way. Because 
the moment it's all just on performance performance so we're not really looking at the individual all the shifts and changes they have to go through you know and it's not very asset based and focused on the individual in front of you yeah and he said wow i love that that's so audacious and i was like oh well i'll start with corporate clients he's like no you won't you're going to start with the athletes because that's big um and at the moment when you talk to federations and organizations like we've got this we're doing we've got lifestyle performance um, lifestyle performance advisors and if i'm honest i didn't even know who mine was and you know mm. people that do have access to them now which I believe the EIS provides, I, I don't really know what they're doing because obviously we've still got this issue of people not being prepared in an asset-based way. So I think they need to really look at, you know, key issues that athletes are going through, start listening to the athletes. There's a lot of decisions being made for athletes without consulting athletes. Previous athletes, athletes in it right now, young athletes they need to actually understand the needs rather than it being this kind of top heavy decision making you know well we're spending the money so we're going to decide because actually you're wasting your money it's not really going to support where it's needed um so i do think there needs to be a bit of a shake up in the culture i think there needs to be a lot of work going into safeguarding and athlete welfare and I, I won't shut up about it. Like it's something that was really poignant in my career. And I was often silenced and dismissed and just told I was crazy and stopped making noise. But it was real. Those are my experiences. And, you know, when I've hit rock bottom and then realized the whole time my intuition was correct. And unfortunately, certain people I felt yeah. had my back didn't. But then I was like, okay, right, I'm a champion myself. And then when I get to a place where I'm strong again, I'm going to make sure that that doesn't happen to any other athlete. So that's what fuels me now. I definitely retired prematurely, but I have peace with that. And now I am passionate about revolutionizing the culture because it's, it's crazy in 2021. Things that happened in mm. 2005 are still happening. And when I talk to retired athletes, saying oh well that was the same for us and i'm not really someone that can see wrong and just step over it and keep going to me that's nonsense. yeah it seems to be in a lot of sports the the welfare of the athletes is not the most important thing which should be the most important thing and um, we've obviously seen it recently with naomi osaka that yeah that they do what is best for them the business they don't do what's best for the athletes and the athletes are who make the sports in the first place and that's something that has to change 100 percent, you know you look at all the stakeholders and whenever decisions are made or mm. these studies come out you know they talk to the ceos and they talk to the senior management and they talk to the, the psychologists and the scientists and then you might have a little bit of you know, percentage that's dedicated to coaches and then even less to athletes and i think that's ridiculous because you're doing this because mm. athletes are involved and you're supposedly doing this for athletes so that needs to be shifted and i shifted and i really want to turn that upside down and but it's going to start with the athletes speaking up it's going to start with the athletes understanding you know the role that they have to play and feeling empowered and feeling brave enough it's hard there's you know i don't speak badly of past athletes that haven't 
been these activists and stuff because they can do the best that they could in the times that they had with what they had and it wasn't easy for them to speak out and i think what we have now is a generation that's a lot more fearless i'm riding off their confidence a lot of the time and thinking okay do you know what let me use my platform to help and what i mean by that for example we've got this new advocacy agency Knist for women has started and i definitely 100% champion what they do proudly an ambassador but i remember thinking gosh i would love to start something like this but no one's going to listen to me <laughs> and it was like it's not something you want to do on your own take i tried taking on the giants and you know that didn't go down too well um and you know they look at me and they're like why are you supporting and why this and i'm like because like this is something that needs to be exposed this is something that needs to be changed this is not right we're talking about human beings and humanity and lives and when it comes to mental health and even in lockdown alone looking at the stats of athletes that are taking their lives because of what sport that's not right so you know there's there's experiences that i have but then i just have this bug that you know i can't see injustice not for something like sport and nelson mandela said it has the power to change the lives it's it's for good not for bad Mm. You know, and, and there is it is a politics, it yeah. is a business, I get that, but at, at what cost does winning come? Exactly. One of the things that I find quite fascinating is what's happening now. You have, you know, the younger generation who are quite explicit and transparent in the way that they feel and the things that they are not necessarily happy with. And then what you do is you have, you know, retired the old rear guard sometimes almost having a go at these you know the the younger generation saying you know why are you you know um being so public about things why don't you speak to the organizations why don't you speak to the federations but then it comes back to what you you were saying you know it's about the, the fact that there are um athletes like yourself who actually do um talk up but often shut down so I guess my question to you is, you know, during that time when you were trying to open up and you were being shut down, um, how did that have an impact on you um, with regards to performance and and on a wider perspective and a wider um, perspective? I think initially it was my fuel. I was like, right, <laughs> um, that is my natural reaction. You tell me no or something isn't right, and I know I'm someone that prides themselves on their integrity I had no choice but to be an honest person and so for me to really speak up on something I'm I think it's really terrible or you know it's just not right so it takes a lot for me to and also there's not a lot that really bugs me I I just manage myself and I can accept people for who they are so you know for me to speak up it's serious and so to be ridiculed or shut down or plain old just silent it takes its toll so initially i'm like especially when i was younger i was just like whatever i don't need that anyway or i'm going to do this anyway and there's only so much knockback you can keep taking and, and i think what was happening is i just kept pushing mm. and pushing and pushing and i'm the first person to tell you i'm a human you know it's like don't be fooled by the muscles like i literally my mind just couldn't take any more and you start to doubt yourself and you're thinking, well, this has just been no one's listening. I can't compete. Finances has been something that has I've always struggled with. And once that was gone, what else do I have? I've got nothing else to fight with. No one's coming to stand with me. You know, that was one of the hardest times, 2012, when I just was by myself 
because everyone was so scared of this bully coach. And it really, you know, obviously mm. my knee jerk reaction was to go to America, um, which I could do at the time, but it wasn't the best decision looking back at the time because it was an emotional reaction to something pretty major. And it doesn't matter where you go, yeah. that issue hadn't been resolved and it followed me to America and ultimately until I faced it and, and, and found peace with that situation. Yeah, it's it's what I'm learning is it's not everybody wants to speak up and that's fine. Um, but if you do choose to speak up, you've got to make sure you've got your support system to back you and catch you when it gets tough because it's it's also a very emotionally draining thing to do. Constantly reliving your trauma, constantly reliving your pain. And I don't need validation anymore. I don't need anyone to necessarily believe me. I know it happened. And I'm speaking up and what happens is other people that relate will, you know, find courage and they will connect with you, whether it's publicly or not. And for me, just to let people know that they're not alone and this stuff is being seen and I'm seeing and I'm hearing and I'm advocating is enough for me. With the type of stuff that was going on, was that just happening from coaches or was that happening from other athletes as well? You know what, for the most part, athletes are very good at having each other's back now i, I don't really expect mm. an athlete to necessarily vouch publicly because obviously there's a lot on the line but actually now i'm thinking yeah. that's actually what it's going to take that's what we need so there have been certain scenarios like obviously my close-knit community of athletes always had my back you know lee valley we had a lovely community there but when I start getting these brave people on Twitter that are athletes that have a very privileged life <laughs> starting to comment and I'm just like, you know, that that irks me because it's like when it happens to you, I will be there to support you because, you know, I know what this whole system is. And especially when they're quite young and frivolous. But ultimately, there are a lot of athletes that have been able to experience sport from a place of white privilege. So they will never really know the 10 mm -hmm. times harder I've had to work to get to where I have. Um, and it did come to a bit of a head in 2012 yeah. with that whole situation, which was very, very ugly and political. And, you know, ultimately, you know, I really was quite naive coming into sport and I didn't really understand the powerful, you know, shoes I was filling by being who I was at that time and achieving and running down the people I was running down. And the, the Federation just didn't like yeah. it. But, I didn't really want to see it like that. I was just like, I'm the best though. So that's why I've got here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I learned as soon as there's an opportunity to kick me out the door, they took it because I wasn't the face that they wanted. I wasn't the face that fit. You know, obviously I've been hearing for so long, you're not going to do this, you're not going to do that. And then you just keep doing it. Heads were rolling. So, you know, now I can look back quite proud mm -hmm. of myself and everything I've achieved. But at the time it was, you don't get to sit and have that luxury. You don't get to digest stuff. I watch my races now and I'm like, girl, you were all right. <laughs> like I just, I didn't get to really <laughs> revel in it. And I used to get comments. So when you travel to the meet, you, you get paired with people that are random. So this is like how I got to meet a lot yeah. of the team that I wouldn't not necessarily mesh with. And I remember one girl, she's based in Loughborough and we got paired together in Monaco. We had a nice corner room. And she turned around and she's like, oh, you're actually really nice. And I was like, I don't really know how to do that. What do you mean? She's wow. like, well, 
You know, people as <laughs> good as you are not usually nice. I was just like, I just don't know how to take that, but thank you. Like, I, I feel like we're humankind and we're called <laughs> to be both. Yeah. So I'm just me and I'm yeah, sharing yeah. a room with you. We've got a weekend to get through. What? Why do I need to be any kind of way? If I was a diva, I would just demand a room to myself. But I love people and, you know, this is a hard yeah. enough road to be on. So. So I just remember being really taken aback by that and this perception that people have um, because you're a medalist, you should be a certain way. That's how you need to be. That's cool. But for me, I was just, you know, like I said, running was a way out of the life, the hardship that I knew it was, you know, serving a purpose. And I just relished all the gifts that were given to me. Marilyn, I want to take you on a little journey. So when I did the 800 meters Wait, in school, so from zero to 200 <laughs> meters. <laughs> all right. So from zero to 200 meters, I was doing all right. Um, I'm naturally, I was naturally faster than most people. I was a bit of a sprinter. So um, I started off a little bit fast. I was ahead, you know, had a little bit, I was feeling myself. Then we get to 200 to 400 and yeah, things are, are kicking in now. Chest is, my chest is, 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 is um, uh, what's the word? My chest, I'm not wheezing, but my chest is strong. I can feel it. It's pumping. My heart is pumping hard. I can feel my muscles, everything. So, but I'm, st I'm still in the race, but I'm, I'm not going as fast. 600, um, so 400 to 600. This is where my mind is all over the place. I'm telling myself, listen, you are a sprinter. You only do 100 and 200 meters. Why are you in this race? Just give up. Just give up. This is nonsense. You do not need to be doing this. Why are you doing this to yourself? <laughs> so I'm continuing. I'm continuing. I'm continuing. Then you get to the last 200 meters. By then, remember, the prior, prior 200 meters, I've got all of these thoughts in my head. I haven't realized that people have been running past me. So then now... I'm nowhere in the lead and, <laughs> and now I'm now chasing. So then I'm thinking, oh, snap, what am I going to do? So then it's the last 200 meters. I've literally got no energy. I've got, no, I've got self-doubt. I'm saying to myself that I'm weak. I'm saying to myself I'm a sprinter. But then the only thing that's helping me is pride. Now, pride, they say, is a killer. A man with pride is a fool. But in this instance, pride was the one that helped me. So I kept going, I kept going, I kept going. Cut a long story short, I didn't win the race. I didn't even finish in the top three. I didn't even finish in the top five. But I finished the race. But I guess my question to you is that last 200 to 250 meters is when your mind is racing. So you're having to deal with staying, staying aligned with your race strategy but you're also in a competitive race with some world-class athletes. Talk to us about some of the routines that you learn in training for you to keep your mind aligned whilst so many things are going through First of all, your mind. I want to congratulate you on running a wicked 800. And do you know what? Each time you'll just finish further and further up the line. Like you commit, <laughs> that was called commitment. Yeah. What we need to work on is pace judgment. That is all. Second of all, that's how yes. I raced and that's yes. how I started racing and that's how I kept on racing. And, you know, obviously I just spent more time conditioning. I did a lot of over distance. And for me, the race began at 2.50. I knew I was conditioned. I was fit. 
I could just glide round and at 2.50 was decision-making time, movement, bringing it home. And if I yeah. had positioned myself well and in my races like that, it, I executed, you would see me building up from that 300 to go, that 2.50. So by the time I got to 200, I was already gone. And that last 150, you just break it down in 50s and mm. you're just pushing and picking up and picking up. And that's just when you run that, that 800 when it works so well. Then, like you said, there's other people in the race. They get in your way. There's, you know, you might not start how you need mm. to start. And, you know, I feel like this is like how they try to sabotage me sometimes because whenever there was a race with a pacemaker and we were going to go too fast, that race was mine. And so they started taking pacemakers out of the race because they knew that I wasn't um, as comfortable when it was a slower pace. And I was already always people's pacemaker. So I had to learn in training to prepare for any, any which way. And I'm someone that grew up in a lot of chaos. I learned to function in dysfunction. So naturally, the ability to focus when so much is going on around you, uh, you know, I, I could tap into that. Yeah. Um, I'm someone that can sleep anywhere. Because as an athlete, that's quite a good skill to have because you might be on a random night bus or flight. And so all these things play in just that ability. I always say it like one of the transferable skills that businesses love about athletes is our ability to focus and get the job done because we will focus on one thing until we are successful. And so that definitely played into my race. I think whenever I was in supreme shape and I had all the training, you know, done. I was pretty confident that whatever happened, I could get myself out of any situation, you know, bring it. I generally like to run one way, keep it simple, get out there, establish your rhythm and bring it home. But sometimes it calls for a bit of hanging back, especially when you're looking at heats and things. And what we would do in training is, is replicate those scenarios. So I had a really strong training group in my heyday. I had the likes of Donna Fraser in there, Danny Crate, the Paralympian, you know, some you know, great guys that would just you know be good pacemakers as well as you know the younger athletes like Tara Bird was in there Montel Douglas so there was a nice range and so at every sort of bit of me so I had to do some 200 training some 400 training 600 training 800 training and the longer stuff I had people to cover all bases and for me the most uncomfortable part was having people around me so we did that a lot and like I told you I didn't like training so whenever we did the uncomfortable stuff AO made it uncomfortable and so when I got into the race go into that autopilot of mm. okay this is how I navigated then but for me it was mainly my mindset and just I, I wasn't someone that studied who was in my race before I didn't really like all of that I think it just fed into the <laughs> the mindset and I'll be carrying that worry for too long um I mm. loved it when I raced abroad more so than in mm. the UK don't know why I just felt like always raised my game um, to be honest, trials was probably the most stressful weekend ever for me, uh, the British Championships, because I knew it was all on me. When I went abroad, I knew I was going to be coming up against girls that wanted to run fast, and that's how I loved to race. Um, but yeah, you, you, the 800 is tricky like that because there's so many variables, whether it's the weather or someone getting in your way or the pacemaker often i don't know if you notice any of my races but there's a lot of times i'm telling the pacemaker to get out of the way and they get me but you're slowing me down who would get away yeah <laughs> <laughs> a particular one was gateshead 2008 she was annoyed she was trying to get a 600 pb i was like look love 
not on my dime. <laughs> yeah, <all right. laughs> um, so yeah, I just you know that's why I'm so passionate and I just love exploring mindset. So you know when I saw you guys come up, I was like, I know. Let's talk about the power mm-hmm. of the mind and the subconscious mind is incredible. Mm. I think once you lock in something or you're really focused and want to achieve something, you will find a way to get it done, even if it's in the moment. And that's something that I think is very unique skill to me that ran with my mind most of my career. The mind is so, so, so important. We've seen so many world-class athletes in terms of ability, but when the mind is not right, it's just yeah, yeah it can have a massive 100%. i don't impact. think i trained the hard well i did train hard i did actually i trained very hard I didn't train smart we didn't always train <laughs> smart we didn't maximize everything i brought to 800 meters i think we spent a lot of time focusing on what the other girls were doing and you know lots of over distance so it's like you know if i could um, like I, I don't want to be a coach, to be honest. I haven't got another 20 years to stand at the track in the rain with a stopwatch. But I will coach <laughs> if I see someone that I feel like has the ingredients that I brought to the 800. I will definitely make sure that all the stuff that I did wrong, that they don't do that. And it starts with looking at the individual in front of you. And I think no one really mm. did that. They coached the 800. You gave us a snapshot about you know, you having a muscular body and some saying that, you know, it wasn't, you are meant to be a sprinter. And, you know, prior to this interview, I did do a little bit of research and this is something that you've spoken explicitly about. Um, Can you talk to us about, you know, that's just that journey and how, you know, when, when did you first come to the realization that there was this stigma attached to your, your muscular body and um, can you talk to us about the early stages and how you overcame that and where you became very, very comfortable in yourself and knew that you can yeah, be so a I success think I in your event? I started having like body confidence image sort of wobbles, I would say, when you're at that impressionable age, so sick form and you're starting to date and things like that. And I was just around, you know, people that look completely different to me. And so you're like, why am I so different? Why do I stick out all the time? But I didn't, I wasn't pressurized. I think it was just that young teenage mindset. You you want to like what you see in the mirror, but everyone else looks so different and they're the popular ones. But then I just cut that. I was like, listen, I need, I'm a Ferrari. I need to run fast. And this is what I need to look like to run fast. And then uni, I had, I went to Bath University and I hung around with a lot of Africans and Caribbeans. And so I felt comfortable in my skin. And I was in a, a relationship. So I had no reason to sort of doubt myself. And then my running was going well. And I get to elite running. And all of a sudden, there's all these grown people commenting on the way I look and not my performance. And you're just like, who are you? <laughs> like, why? What's the big whoop? Um, I'm running fast. Look at my performance. But for some reason, they just couldn't understand it. And I think that did definitely was I ran with it. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to show you that muscly girls can. I've got Serena Williams. She's showing you that muscly girls can. That I took my confidence from that. Constantly being told you're too big, you're too heavy. And I think it came to a head 
when I spoke out about it, my experience with the head coach at the time. And I got particularly enraged by this because I just felt like I didn't have a right to comment on my body or my training because it wasn't coming from a, an informed place. You knew nothing about my training. You knew nothing about me. And so when it's happening like that, I then started to question his intentions and his actual motives. And, you know, we can go down the sinister road if we want, but, you know, at the end of the day, I didn't appreciate those remarks. And that's when I took ownership of it because I thought, you've gone back and told someone. So the incident that happened was I was training on a camp and he came into the gym you know, puffing his chest and stopped and said, and this is a comment I quite often hear from people, oh, you look fit, you look in shape because your veins are popping out. Now, very rarely in my career did I ever go above 10% body fat. But this particular time, I was very lean. I'd been in Portugal for about three weeks already. I was ready to rock and run. Naturally, my body would do that. You're starting to sprint more. We're starting to lift, you know, faster weight. Um, and I was getting conditioned. So the fact that he said, oh, now I look like a runner because my my veins are showing. So he was happy with that. It's like, okay, whatever. Then his next comment was, how, how heavy are you? What do you weigh? And again, I wasn't really someone that weighed themselves very often, but I was particularly proud of the fact that I weighed 60 kg because that's race weight and we're a little bit ahead of schedule. And he was like, oh my goodness, you must be heavy boned. Mm. And I was, I just walked out of the so I didn't think anything of it went on to the championship had the championship and then I got home and the nutritionist I was assigned to was like here's your new diet plan and I was like my what <laughs> what for oh you know Charles says you need to go on this diet you need to weigh this by the by the next championship and I remember looking at that nutritionist in my head thinking are you going to do your job or you're just scared that you're going to lose your job because of what the head coach has said so i think from then that's when i sort of took ownership over mm. what was happening to me what i was agreeing to because that really didn't make sense because the diet when i look at it it took out all the things that i need for my body to function and to fuel my body so you know and also i'd been there before i'd come out of injury and then this person put me on a diet we took out all that stuff and i ran worse I had no power. I wasn't fueling my body. So I was not going to go down that route again. And I was like, you can do nonsense, but as far as I'm concerned. And, and I felt like from that moment, I, I, had, I was on my own. You know, no one was really going to stand up to him. And it, it definitely cost me, <laughs> you know, being that maverick, being that outspoken. But I wasn't, you know, it's, it's quite similar to Kasten when she stood up and said, I'm not taking any drugs my body to suit you and what you think I should look like it was that's kind of how I felt in that moment because ultimately when it goes wrong then it's you again it falls on you so yeah I just you know I always let my running do the, the talking and even with that my style of running was constantly criticized so it was just a lot I feel like I was always constantly having to prove when I stepped on the line there was so much more than just the race I was running um, which I, you know, I wish I could have been able to just run. That's all I came into the sport to do was run. That's the thing. No, no one comes in for <laughs> for any of the other politics that comes with it. You, you come there to run, and 
to put to put that pressure on on an athlete. There's no, we're all built differently. Everyone is built differently, and everyone functions differently. So there's no one one way fix all that some people like to put on on athletes. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Just like it's very simple, you know. Just coach the person in front of you, and that goes from just knowing yeah. what makes them tick. You know, it's re- it just takes a little bit of effort getting to know. It's a relationship. Build that relationship. Build that trust. And then you guys will be on a great footing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I guess, you know, common sense ain't that common. <laughs> <laughs> one of the areas, um, and this is just m- my opinion, one of the areas that I reckon, you know, that's sometimes often overlooked is the mental preparation um, with the coverage, media coverage. And, you know, when, you know, everyone seems to have an opinion of you, whether it's good or bad. Uh, my next question would be, if you had a, a young up and coming athlete, how do you mentally prepare them for media coverage um, and more significantly the negative? First of all, I think I would, you know, safeguard that individual by letting them know that there will be things said that may not be very nice or very positive. There may be things that are untrue. And ultimately, we've got a job to do. So that is the main focus. If you want to give an interview, give an interview. You don't have to give an interview. They kind of try and make you feel like you have to. You don't have to. Um, You don't have to answer all the questions. If there's a question you, you don't understand or you don't want to answer, simply say no comment or thanks very much. I need to go you can just keep walking. There is a lot of pressure on these athletes being told, oh, you know, you've got to talk to the media and say thank you to the X, Y, and Z. And almost just prepare a bit of a script. You kind of know the general questions they're going to ask you. Each sort of broadcaster has their style. So you can just prepare them for, you know, a bit of role play. And I think this is what we don't really see. I think everyone thinks, oh, media training has to be some big thing. No, it's just, it's communication. You can do a mock interview right there and then you can watch interviews and see how athletes handle it but ultimately it's controlling the controllables so if there is anything going on in the athlete's life that is questionable you know it's going to come up because this is the media so prepare them prepare the answer ahead of time um yeah i think that's kind of the advice i would give but ultimately just letting them know that they don't have to answer these questions yeah. I, I would rate rate athletes speaking to the media because I know, for example, myself, if I had had a bad race and then the media want to talk to me, that's the last, they're the last people I want to talk to. I want to talk <laughs> to the media. So Why? What I would <laughs> say is, and I'm someone that I always spoke to the media because I wanted my point of view to come across and they would often mm. try, and this is what I learned from Serena and I, you know, this is mm. the main thing I admire about her was her ability to control any interview and they Ride her but she was like honey this is my court you're on um yeah. same with um venus as well you know it's and also you have to realize that in that moment you're the expert you know they are intrigued by your sport what you have just done so they might be trying to get a rise out of you but you you know you call the shot and make sure that you're delivering your version of events not what they want you to do one of the things that this, you know, and I know definitely um, Ed can identify with this is, you know, we're both big tennis fans. And one of our um, biggest grievances is this this whole um, idea that Venus and Serena, they were just powerful. 
and there's so much more to their game. So, for example, Serena's got one of the best serves in the history of women's tennis. I think she's one of the best return returns of serve servers as well. Um, I think in terms of her variety of shots, she is definitely in the upper echelon with, you know, Steffi Graf, um, Billie Jean. And yet that gets overlooked just because you have these extremely, you know, powerful women. And it's something that, you know, maybe in 20, 30, 40 years, um, they will be appreciated. But unfortunately now, um, some corners of the media are only going to see them as just extremely powerful women who just, you know, overpower their opponents where they were... If you look at Serena, she kind of, you know, won 23 Grand Slams purely on power. But um, yeah, that's just the rhetoric or narrative that they're just putting out. So yeah, that's definitely something I wanted to mention. Um, my next question to you would be, what is the greatest misconception in your sport? Oh, that's so rich. <laughs> Please. You know what? It's let's it's talk. Like, let's talk. Miss, are you rich? There's three questions I always get. Miss, are you rich? Miss, do you know Mo Farah? Miss, can you beat Usain Bolt? <laughs> what I know Mo. Yes, there's one. There's one. Yes. Um. Yeah. There's a whole. You're on TV and you're famous, so you you've got this wild lifestyle that's just brawling. And, you know, to be honest, a lot of athletes, especially in track and field, they are doing this because they love it. And it's not for the paycheck. It'll be nice. Paycheck comes with it. There should be a paycheck. Not always there. Um, And even when I, you know, I started working and things like that, people be like, what are you doing here? You're an Olympic bronze medalist. As if, you know, I'm allergic to work. Um, but I, was like, I also have bills to pay and this is you know, <laughs> what I do to get by. Now, I'm not going to say I haven't made money in the sport. I have, but there wasn't really any financial literacy growing up or, you know, I made money and did what I knew best to do it to support my family. And I think that financial guidance could have should have been there. I did have agents, but they were just taking their cuts and doing what they needed to do coaches were taking their cut and no one was really preparing me for that side of it um, which is why I do what I do you know like people need to know this business and I think it was really funny because the Marathon Sports Foundation asked me to deliver some modules on the youth talent program I was like yeah sure what am I doing like mentoring and they're like no you need to do the finance and sports agent module. And I was like are you having a laugh <laughs> But, you know, you can be a great teacher where you've had the biggest failures <laughs> and, and mistakes. And so much of, you know, I'm just delivering. You know, I did have a workshop with my financial advisor. Most of it was just my pitfalls and things I didn't know. And the parents on there were like, oh, my gosh, no one's told us this. And I was like, this is a problem. You know, it's one of those sports you come in so young and it's just fun. And you're running for your club. And a lot of the coaching is for free and everything's free. But it gets to a point where it stops being freeness. Um, and, you know, like I said, athletics was the most accessible to me. But the higher up I got, the, the chips started to stack. And, you know, you have to kind of keep up that lifestyle, pay everybody that wants to get paid. So it's a huge 
gap right now. And you know, we're not a, one of the highest paid sports. You know, when I went to America, I definitely had my eyes open to where track and field lays in the in the rank of things. You know, even college football and college basketball, you know, was the big business. Mm. So it made me realize, like, if you're in track and field, you have to be astute and you have to plan for the business side if you're looking to pursue it as a career. No other career would you go into and expect to work for free. How was it like when it comes to um, the lottery funding? So there's quite high, I guess, levels of attainment. So to be on podium, you basically have to be in the top eight or that you're considered you'll make the top eight, um, have a bronze or a silver medal, and then another level, the top level, is if you've got gold medal. So often that's means tested. So in terms of the money they give you, it depends on your lifestyle and what really you're making. So quite a lot of the elite, elite athletes, they probably don't really go on the funding plan because when they're means tested, they earn too much. So it is really useful for those that perhaps are looking to go into full-time training. They can actually step away from a full-time job and actually focus. A lot of the benefits that come with it is access to physios and um all the medical side, warm weather camps are paid for, access to whenever the sponsors come on board and they have appearance days, those are the athletes that get picked from first. And then you've got the developmental level, so it will be, and that's a monthly stipend those athletes will get. Again, it's a monthly stipend, but it's a lot less money, but you have a lot more kind of personal development access and then nurturing you to kind of eventually jump onto onto the podium level it's very um interesting how they select <laughs> athletes um i feel that there needs to be a lot more transparency mm. with who's on funding at the minute it's a little bit like you've got the right face or coach obviously like if you have won a medal they cannot deny you they might try but they can't really because the criteria is there and so something i would love to do is kind of almost supersede mm governing bodies and go straight to UK sport and say hey you know this money you're pumping down is not getting to where it really should be because we are hiring these foreign coaches or we were um for a lot of money whereas I think well that could sponsor like an athlete um so yeah it's how it's being divvied out um it's very contentious very I'd love for it to sort of flip on its head and say okay you're in the running for selection um for funding Show me your business plan. How are you going to invest this money? You know, and whoever comes up with the best idea <laughs> runs with it because, you know, it is a business at the end of the day. And if they want to justify not funding someone that probably should be on funding because it's business, um, and then the athletes need to show that they can qualify for it as well. And it gets them thinking in that mindset. Um, the same goes with any kind of selection with the, you know, championship and things like that. I feel like the top level of people that are making all these decisions look the same and they have very sort of old mindset Mm. of how sports should be governed and ran and it's not reflective of the people that are actually in the sport Mm. and actually competing and actually need the support and money. So that's where I got tingly about governance. And that's what Carl George, who runs our courses, 
you're going to leave this course tingly about governance. And at first I thought, oh my God, it's going to be some boring course. But when I put it into the context of sport and the stuff that's going on and the injustices, I was like, nah, yeah, we need to see more black people at senior executive positions in sport, more black women. And we need to see more black coaches. Because when you look at track and field, we are representing everywhere. Then when you look at the senior leadership and the people that are making decisions of our lives, they don't understand me. <laughs> you know, they're just a girl with the loud hair and, you know, she's a bit crazy. They don't understand my yeah. needs. They don't understand the trauma that I come into track and field with. You know, everyone just assumes so much, but assumptions will make, you know, what out of you and me. So, you know, that there's a lot that needs to be done. Um, especially if we're going to level any kind of playing field. Yeah. I want to explore this a little bit more. So what 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 does it look like in terms of you getting your actual funding? Is there a panel? Is there somebody who's just head of performance and you get a letter sent to you? Um, it's, so my question is twofold. Who exactly makes those decisions? And secondly, what is the criteria or are you aware of the criteria for the, either the individual or individuals to be those decision makers? Because looking at it holistically and I'm just thinking aloud, surely those who are making those decisions, surely, you know, I could be ignorant. Surely there should be at least maybe a percentage that are past af former athletes. Because sometimes when I look at other sports, I'm not going to name any sports. When it comes to the big decision makers, they, they, they have nothing to do with that sport. They just got a qualification in at university, you know, that is applicable to, you know, maybe marketing and sales, etc. But then they have some of the biggest decisions and there is absolutely no, there is, there is no emotion or investment attached to that sport. So can you just really explain one of my biggest gripes is that there's no transparency <laughs> i think one of the biggest problems track and field has had was the introduction mm. of lottery funding i have you know toyed over this for ages i remember when i came into the sport the main mm. thing is i need to get on funding i need to get on funding and that is where the athletes focus went and then you get on funding and you think you've made it but what you don't realize there is so much comes with that and it, it's not in a good way so for me almost funding stifled me i was fortunate enough to have mm. outside supports and you know sponsors but if you're on funding you can only eat from a certain plate and you have to eat at this time and this person's going to dictate that and as soon as you are veering off in another direction the, the funding carrot gets dangled and so you get fearful and i don't think athletes realize how dangerous and institutionalized that is um so as far as the people making the decisions i have to say they were so far away from me i didn't really know who was who i know there was like a head coach i know there was a ceo and this is what i mean they don't mm. really those lines of communications mm. are not open so then when these decisions are making they can hide behind that because they don't have to see you and have that emotional connection so they can then be removed for it and yeah. you're a commodity and they can just you know that's enough um no more of that so you know this is something i'd love to see change i'd love them to see and i think joanna coates is, is the start of this change i know she's got a battle royale on her hands but i don't want it to be a tick box exercise like they need to really shake it mm. up and change that culture and it starts mm. at the top the 
fish rots from the head. So if you've got good leadership in place, things will start to improve and we'll start to see happier systems and frameworks and the coaches and athletes and we'll have the performances. You know, when I look at USATF, it's such a diverse organization mm. and you've got so many former athletes that are making key decisions. And what do you know? USA are killing it, you know? Mm. Um, so there's there's a lot to be said. I love that you mentioned about former athlete yeah. experience. There needs to be more of that. You know, they do kind of bob us off with, you've got the British Athletes Commission, you've got this, but even, you know, they've got work to do in terms of their diversification. And, you know, when big decisions are being make, made, we need more athletes at the table. Like, that, I ain't seen that. My last question to you. What are the three, what three words stand out to you that a athlete would need? Being yeah. resilient. <laughs> um, ambition. Don't just limit yourself to making a team, you know, making dials and, you know, think so big, like you've got one career, yeah. aim high. And if the pool you're in and the group you're in are just restricting you, you need to, that's when you need to diversify, extend your network, really use that network because as athletes, that is one of our most valuable things we have and you're going to really need it in your life after sport. So what have I said? Resilience, ambition, perseverance. Resilience. Use better, persevere. Keep on keeping on because success, it ain't an overnight thing. And if it's an overnight thing, it's going overnight yeah. as well. Perseverance is, is the biggest thing that I take from my journey. It's my testimony. There's going to be all sorts that come at you. But if you've got your eyes on the prize, you keep going, get knocked down, get back up and just persevere. And it may not even be in a physical perseverance. It's going to be the constant nose or door shut in your face. Persevere until you get what you came for, what you're preparing day in, day out. Last question. So your career is going to be seen on a big screen. Um, there's a Hollywood <laughs> budget for it. So who would play you? Um, I'll probably make it my last slide. Um, so I've just done my debut, my first <laughs> post track life, and it's called Beyond the Track. But my last slide was called Chasing Grace. So I think that would be the title. Who would I get to play me? <laughs> um, yeah, I'd definitely give Serena the role. Um, she... <laughs> Definitely give that to Serena. Like, you no know, brainer. Like, we just stand in for each other all the time. Um, yeah, that, that's lovely. Talk to us about your your webinar. So, plug away. Amazing. So, yeah, I've got detached the stigma, which has turned from a hashtag, frustrating hashtag of events in my life. And I've got together with some incredible people, athletes, past and present, as well as, you know, industry specialists. And Detach the Stigma is basically courageous conversations like we've had tonight about real emphasis on the mental health of sports people. It's very prevalent timing. We had a really powerful session with Annika Onwara and Simi Pam. We 
plays um, rugby for Bristol Bears and it was all about body image. I entitled it My Black Body, My Image and stuff we talked about today was exactly that because, you know, people are starting to dictate what happens to our bodies without even understanding us. Um, there's a lot of talk around the stigma of eating disorders in the black community as well as in males and, you know, how it's so complicit in the world of sport. Um, and it's been incredible. It's going really well. I've got one more conversation on June 16th, and that is a roundtable with lots of professionals that are working in this space and trying to detach these stigmas. And they're people that I've come into contact with in my journey and who've helped me in mental health. And, you know, with, you know, right now my transition, my body has changed and it's not bad. It's just Marilyn, the woman is emerging. And for so long, I've just been used to dictating you know, how, when, what happens to my body. And so now the body is just saying, hey, it's my time. Um, and then I've got an incredible webinar for the athletes. I really want athletes to be on this. It's a champion mindset webinar. And I've got some incredible guests. Um, I'm going to say it here because I'm not announcing it tomorrow, but I've got Natasha Jonas, um, who's just incredible. I've got Danielle Brown, who is, an, she's basically never lost an archery competition ever. Wow um and archery listen i don't know if you've tried archery but that is not easy and i've also got stuart wade who is a hypnotherapist and a former martial arts player and he works a lot on mindset with athletes so so let's get that self chat sorted out absolutely absolutely marilyn this was a really 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 good conversation and yeah we're really really happy that you um decided to come on and we definitely know that listeners will get something from this conversation. So, yeah, we really, really appreciate you coming on. Um, do you have any last words? Yeah, I really appreciate, you know, you extending this invitation to me. Thank you for amplifying my voice. If any listeners want to connect with me, I'm Marilyn Okoro across the socials. I love to interact and let's keep talking mindset. <laughs> Absolutely. Guys, if you you already know how this ends, if you are a new listener, welcome aboard. If you are a regular listener, um, thank you and please continue to share this podcast. Guys, until next time, stay safe, stay healthy and peace. <laughs>